Welcome back to the Zero Weakness Podcast, where we talk about how to be a better lifter, how to be a better coach, and everything in between. Make sure you subscribe and enjoy. All right, welcome back to the Zero Weakness Podcast. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by Establishment Coffee. Go to establishmentcoffee.com.au, use the code 025, get 25% off your order and free shipping. We are back with another podcast, and today we're joined with a special, very special guest all the way from Wales. Um, he's Jordan Hellier. Flew uh, all the way from Wales for the podcast. Yes, just for the podcast, yeah. nothing else. For sure. Worth the trip, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> now, Jordan came down to compete in, uh, in Pro Raw, and now he's hanging out with us. Uh, Brisbane Gold Coast checking out the Zero Gyms for the next couple of weeks. Uh, but let's get straight into it and we'll get some info on you, Jordan. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do over there in Wales. Cool, yeah. So Jordan Hellier from Cardiff in Wales. Um, I am a strength coach. So I'm like the Zero representative of the, of the Zero brand in the UK. Um, so primarily I just do like in-person PT. Um, I do some online coaching for the, the Zero guys. Um, do the coach development system primarily hitting like the GMT time zones. So when Thomas is sleeping, we're still working. Um, and I also tennis coach as well. So I was tennis coaching before um, before I've been doing like strength coaching and powerlifting coaching. Um, and I still do that, you know, a little bit now. Yeah, so that was kind of your, your gateway into strength sports, right? The, that's your, your sporting background is tennis. When did you start playing tennis and, and sort of how far did you go with it? Yeah, so I probably started playing when I was around about 12. I got introduced to it by my best friend's nan because me and my best mate were uh, little shits so we needed some sort of guidance to to keep us off the or keep us in the on the straight and narrow so going to tennis when I was about 12 um just played for fun at like a local club and pursued it a little bit harder when I was about like 13 14 got into like a like a little academy got into some uh, competitions um and then just went from there really and um, pursued it all through my my junior career had a little bash at pro events when I was about 18, 19. Uh, come to quite an abrupt end then when I was about 20, 21, um, just due to like finances and like low level professional tennis is just like really difficult to break through. Requires a lot of like time commitments, a lot of travel, a lot of finances. Um, so then I transitioned from, from that into coaching. Yeah, so when we were talking the other day, you know, you, you mentioned that the financial side of things was what made you stop. If you were... To predict how far you would have gone if that wasn't an issue, how far do you think you would have taken tennis? Oh, uh, without blowing my own trumpet, I was really confident. You know, like I could have, I could have made a career out of career out of tennis. Um, I feel like I had like some good attributes as a as a player, um, but it just requires so much time. You know, it's just a lot of financial outlay, and at low level, you end up spending more than you earn, even if you do win an event. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just takes a lot of persistence at that level. But I, I'm I'm confident I would have I was confident that I would make a, a living from it. How far up I would go, you know, is unknown because unless you experience the top tier. Um, you can't really you can't really project from so far away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you say like it's a huge time commitment, you know, obviously there's the financial side of things in terms of coaching, time away from being able to make money, traveling internationally to play tennis. How much time are we talking? Like, what would the time commitment have been to continue down that route? So, like, uh, from a training perspective, you're looking at like so in terms of like a daily schedule, you're looking at like minimum four hours on court plus two hours of SNC. Um, and that's pretty much every day. Um, and then in terms of like competitions, it's, it's far different to powerlifting. Like powerlifting scheduling is like three comps a year. One of which of those is probably a very low priority train through me. You maybe peak one big peak, maybe have a mini peak in there. So, you, you know, you're only prioritizing one event. When it comes to tennis, you're playing pretty much like three tournaments a month. Um, and then you're only going to particular tournaments that's going to, you know, give you the ranking points or give you the prize money, give you that opportunity to climb the ranks. So, like, you know, the the time spent playing, you know, is just constant. You're, like, you're engulfed in the sport permanently from a training perspective and from a competitive standpoint as well. And then to break through to start getting, you know, just some financial return in terms of, like, outlay and prize money, you're probably looking at, like, pursuing that for a, a good, like, 18 months to two years on average um, before you start getting that return. Mm-hmm. And so for you then, um, how did you, you know, you obviously got to this point, you decided, okay, well, tennis isn't going to work. 
is it was was it straight into something else or was there a lull period before you found say strength training and powerlifting like how did the transition from tennis to powerlifting happen so when i was like sort of dying out the playing i sort of reduced the amount of competitions i was playing and started to like do like the coaching courses so i could start making some making some real money um so through that through that period when like tennis was starting to dwindle away in terms of competitive my coaching career took off a little bit i had some good support i had some really good mentors in wales that you, you mean tennis th- coaching right yeah just to is, clarify yeah, yeah. Just, this is tennis coaching so i transitioned into tennis coaching away from from playing and then once I was like fully invested in just coaching, I just felt a little bit lost personally because I spent all this time on me trying to pursue a sport that I thought I could be professional in and then had literally nothing, just trying to help other people pursue the same thing. So I wanted to be competitive in something. Um, and I found that when I was like training for tennis, I was always like one of the stronger guys um, in SNC, and I was always the one that put, probably put in the most put in the most work. Um, so I started to then, you know, go and go a little bit harder in the gym and just do it from like, you know, just for self fulfillment, you know, like feel good about myself in the in the gym. Mm-hmm. Got into into like CrossFit um, for a very short period, but I just tried to be competitive because, like, you know, CrossFit classes is like you go to a generic class and you have like a workout 12 minutes or 10 rounds or whatever it becomes quite competitive so I tried trying to find like quick competition so I could get that get where I wanted that endorphin release from that and then from from there then I sort of moved away from CrossFit did a little bit of weightlifting um just really casual but really like the technique side of things of there um, and then I was just getting a little bit beaten up from doing doing weightlifting. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to just squat a little bit. And then I was like, oh, I'll bench a little bit. And then I found like powerlifting. And I was like, oh, this is like a, this is pretty cool. I'd like to pursue this a little bit harder. Found some things on the internet, found some guidance from like, you know, Mark Bell and, you know, the JTS guys and things like that. And then I just started just putting myself in in that sort of sport and then found a competition did a did like a local competition and then and then I was hooked and then I was just trying to just search for more information use my expertise from like tennis coaching and then just try and reapply it into just a slightly different sport no I was just gonna say um no I'm glad you found powerlifting it's way healthier than Olympic weightlifting (laughs) Um, so it's really good but I don't know if you're gonna touch on this later but how did you guys meet how did you guys come up I've known you for a while now on the internet online in the online space but I've never actually asked this question yeah so like um once so from where I just said then when I first got into powerlifting I probably pursued it like two years before like seeking out a coach um and I actually reached out to another Australian coach called Alex Deacon um I followed I found him before I found Thomas um I sort of reached out to him and I asked if he like had any coaching spots or what he thought and due to his like you know um, work commitments at the time it was like a conflict of interest so he referred me on to Thomas um, and then I, I found I just like looked at zero um, and just like researched Thomas and I didn't act immediately I was like god he's he's really expensive you know like back at home it was like like really inexpensive for powerlifting coaching much smaller sport than how it is in Australia at that time um, so then I, there was like a little like interim period where I didn't where I didn't um, get in contact with Thomas but then from there then he started doing like the podcasts and stuff and then when I was starting to listen to that more, I just felt like he had a real good, like, technical, um, you know, system for powerlifting coaching. And because of, like, tennis and the, how te- technical tennis is, I just sort of related to it real, real well. So I reached out and then started getting coached by Thomas. That's mad. You know what they say, you know, don't, don't uh, expect a Ferrari when you're only willing to pay Toyota Corolla prices. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you drive? doesn't matter (laughs) (laughs) and judge a book by its cover Jordan (laughs) I don't don't actually remember that as in like I remember you reaching out uh, via email and I remember you mentioning that you'd be referred by Alex yeah so thank you Alex I really appreciate that Um, but I I I don't remember how it went from there did I sort of send you pricing and you were like well fuck this guy and disappear for a while and then come back so you resent you sent me so I did wait wait wait. so I I remember you replying and saying I'm doing juggernaut um, AI at the moment and I'll come back to you once I finish this program. Yeah. Which now that you've said that, I have realized that that was your way of saying, fuck, I'm not doing this. I'll just tell them I'll come back and I'll never come back. <laughs> and then you change your mind. So joke's yeah. on you. <laughs> For sure. I just wasted some time. <laughs> um, yeah. So I yeah reached out and then you gave me your prices and then um, you gave me a discount actually. You're really nice. Oh. Um, CJ, CJ, edit the so, whole part out, man. <laughs> so anyone that wants coaching by zero, just demand a discount. You'll probably get it. No, no, no. Back, back in the day, like I, I um, 
that was a time where I, I think you were actually my first ever UK lifter. Oh. Uh, and it's always been my thing over the years when I get a lifter from a new country um, to do what I can do to get them on board because historically that's then carried on to, to growing business. So, you know, piece of business advice, look how that's turned out. Jordan now works for Zero, and there's however many, you know, 10, yeah. 15, 20 clients internationally as a direct result of, of working with yourself. So. Yeah, and also to clarify, you know, I made it clear that I, I I was getting stretched, my personal budget was stretched a little bit and you were just accommodating. You just gave me an, uh, an upgraded package, Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, but then from there then, like to get into the situation of where I am now, like working for Zero, I worked with Thomas for about, I think it was probably like six months before, six to eight months maybe before COVID hit, mm-hmm. around that sort of time frame. And then um, I'm sure as it is in Australia and everywhere else, like the country just shut down. Um, so like through that period, I wasn't able to work. Um, I was still doing some like powerlifting coaching um, and I just thought I'd use the opportunity to self-develop. So um, got back in touch with Thomas. He did those free workshops over the COVID period. Mm. So I had like an insight of like how he does his, does his teachings. And I, again, I, I resonated really well with it. Took loads from, from those like free recordings that he did. So then I enrolled on the coach development course. Um, and then once we were about, I think we were about six months in, in the old system, when we were about halfway through the, halfway through the, the system, I had some like private calls with, with Thomas. And then, um, there was like, you know, a lot of, uh, progression over here in zero. And he said that he wanted to develop the coach development system and asked if I potentially wanted to become an educator. That's sick. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause that was the original. So, um, People who are working for me remotely uh, or even some of the employees within Zero, I keep a close eye on people who are enthusiastic and people who really buy into the Zero system through the coach development. So if you ever want to work in Zero, do the coach development system and do it well. Uh, and my I will be on you, trust me. Mm. Um, and Jordan was a, a clear standout from the start. And I was, I was getting to the point where the coach development system was getting a lot of interest. And I wanted other educators because I just had foreseen that there was potential to grow this thing further. And if it was all driven by me, that would become a bottleneck very quickly. And I knew it would take a long time to develop educators. So I spoke to Khan and, and Jordan and, and started um, putting them in more groups and sort of having calls with them. Um, but I, I wasn't super confident to deliver the system in its current form back then. Um, and that kind of just fizzled out a little bit. I was kind of like, oh, well, there's probably not an opportunity to run the coach development this way for the, for the time being. Um, but online coaching was starting to grow and, um, you know, we had conversations about getting Jordan on board as an online coach and uh, bringing his clients over to, to Zero and giving him the Zero systems for, for his clients in the UK. And it, it's just worked out really beautifully. Mm, for sure. Definitely. Mm. Um, so d- let's go back to where we were. You uh, got into powerlifting. You did for your first competition. What were your numbers in that first comp? 200 squat. Um, one 12.5 bench. Two. 40 deadlift nice yeah and what are your best numbers now 350 squat 175 bench 335 deadlift amazing 340 oh yeah they're, they're competition numbers yeah okay yeah i pulled 340 in the gym yeah yep. yep 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 it was really cool actually we saw sebastian mm. uh at, at pro on the weekend and, and jordan had Gone to one of his workshops in the UK in what, 2017? Yeah, 2016. Yeah, so um, he had told me the story of it and I was, me and Sebastian were standing there watching Jordan and I'm like, does this guy look familiar to you? He's like, yeah, he really does. And I'm like, you wrapped him in like 2017, 16, whatever it was. And he's like, I remember. He's like, he's fucking huge now. Because <laughs> what did you squat when he, when he wrapped you? Man, he so we yeah that that workshop it was like it was a handful of us on there and uh, we he was like making it a bit more casual with like the details we were going through and I was keen to learn like how he rapped and experience like his rap and then you know how he teaches people with rap squats at the time um so back then he he did like a soft rap and I squatted one eighty and then he cranked me and my my squat then was like two hundred kilos. <laughs> And then I squatted 350 at yeah, Pro Roll with him watching. It was really interesting. Like yeah. the, the last time he saw him, he squatted 300, uh, 200, and there he is in front of him squatting 350. Yeah, so cool. How, how big were you back then? Because I swear when you first started with Thomas, you were a lot smaller. Yeah. Were, you, were you an under 90 kilo lifter? Yeah. So when I first signed up with Thomas, I was under 90. So I signed up after a competition in Barnstable, uh, and I weighed like 89.5 
in in that in that competition. Signed up with Thomas, and then yeah, now I'm 100 and, 110, competing the hundred and tens, and I weighed hundred and eight at pro roll. Because that's one of the first things I thought when I first met you. I was like, "Fuck, he's ginormous." I did not expect him to be this big. <laughs> It's a really interesting thing about having like these long-term online relationships with people. You know what they look like, so you know how to, but you never actually get a handle of their shape and appearance in person, especially with height. And so like for me, Jordan was way taller than I was expecting. Yeah. I was like, oh, hello. <laughs> hello up there. But I'm only five you? foot 11, so <laughs> Thomas is quite small. You're definitely six foot. <laughs> definitely six foot. Um, tell us about your diabetes. So um, mm. Jordan's also a type one diabetic. Uh, and that, uh, you know, does throw a spanner in the works when it comes to performance in terms of just, uh, you know, it's been really interesting because I, I know about type 1 diabetics. I've trained type 1 diabetics. J Jason Semler was a type 1 diabetic, the, the former bench press champion of Australia. Um, you know, I've been around type 1 diabetics before. My sister-in-law is type 1 diabetic. But I've never really, now that you're staying with me at home and we hung out all weekend at, um, at Pro Raw, I've never seen the actual, uh, I don't know if burden's the right word. Uh, yeah, maybe it is the right word. Definitely the right word. The, the, the burden that it is having to constantly monitor this thing. Um, when did you first find out that you were type 1? Yeah, so I was, I was, I got diagnosed really late, you know, like there's this, this whole perception of like his genetics and you get it when you're a kid um, and then people think that it's like almost impossible to get it then later in life. But I got it when I was 24. Um, so I was, it was much later in, in my life. And, and, and to be honest, I was really naive to it. I didn't really know anything about like diabetes. I just, I just assumed diabetes was all one category and it was like poor lifestyle, um, like lack of exercise, poor diet, dietary choices, um, and people were just like in that archetype and they were all diabetics. Um, and then through a period, it was like the summer of when I was 20, 24, so six, six years ago, um, I was just having this like real, like I'd, it was a real crazy time because that was when my career in tennis coaching was really taking off. I was working with like really good, really well-talented um, tennis players that were like aspiring to play like junior Wimbledon they were traveling internationally had a lot of responsibility with them it came with quite a lot of stress but I was really throwing myself at the opportunity to be working with like some amazing players so my working week was like 50 plus hours on court plus I was like training myself plus I was trying to like you know pursue some other endeavors as well so I was really like stretching myself um, so I started losing just loads of weight you know I was probably at the time I was probably weighing about like 85 kilos, um, but my weight was literally just dropping by the by the week. Um, and then it, it just I was trying to intentionally gain weight as well. So there was this like really weird thing. I was like literally Googling things like, oh, if you're eating, you know, like in a calorie surplus, do you like lose scale weight before you gain? And it was just like a real confusing, confusing time for me. So I went from like 85 kilos down to like 76 kilos. Um, in a couple of months trying to eat a lot. Yeah, wow. Um, so it was like, yeah, so I was like changing a lot and people were starting to notice as well. But again, I was just justifying it through like my my work. I was like, oh, my work schedule is real busy at the minute. Hopefully it's not going to stay like this forever. Um, and, and for context, when you say coaching tennis, you're playing with the kids, right? Yeah, so like these these kids I was playing with, uh, like, you know, like they, they were really good players. So like when you're on court, there's a little bit of like work where you're just basket feeding, but I'm pretty much just playing tennis like properly eight hours a day. So calorie expenditure is huge. You yeah. know, you're, you're burning a lot of energy. Um, and then from, from that point, then I was just getting like really, really thirsty. Like I, I couldn't really quench my thirst. And it was, that was just regressing by like by the week as well. It was like to the point where I was probably drinking like, you know, five, six liters. And then I was in, in excess of eight liters. You know, I was like, every time I was on court, I was doing a liter of liter of water. And then obviously a byproduct of that, I was going to the toilet every every half an hour. And then that was really unsettling my, my sleep as well. But again, like, you know, these are real clear warning signs in hindsight now when I look back. But at the time, again, you just create justifications for it. So I'm working lots. I'm train, trying to train really hard. Um, I've got a lot of stress. This is, this is all, all to it. Anyway, it got to the point where there was this one occasion where I had to pick up a client from, from school. I had a drink, went to the toilet, did a 10-minute trip. By the time I came back, I was busting to go to the toilet and I was dying of thirst again. So it was like in, in literally within like 10 minutes. So really bizarre. And then I started drinking and it's just this, this like sheer inertia that you just 
got to keep drinking. As soon as water touches your mouth, you just literally can't stop. So I just like necked a liter of liter of water. And because I just recently drunk a liter as well, it was just too much water and I just threw it all back up. It was really embarrassing. I was in the middle of like the tennis club bar and everyone just see me throwing up this water. And I thought, are you okay? Are you okay? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just like walked off really embarrassed thinking like this is, this is something, this is, this is not just work now. This is getting crazy. So I went to the, went to the doctors and within that time I was Googling my symptoms and they, you know, it came up like potential symptoms for diabetic, for diabetes. Um, so I said to the doctor, you know, I'm not really one to sort of self-diagnose or, you know, read stuff off the internet, but um, I do feel like I've got all the symptoms for diabetes. And then she was like, yeah, probably just like type 2 diabetes, if anything, but probably not. We'll just do a couple of tests. And she pricked my finger, put it in the glucose monitor. And like a normal range is probably between like four and six. Um, and mine just said high. Um, it just said HI. And I was like, oh, what does that mean? And she was just like, oh, you're literally just off the scale. It's a, it's a really high reading that the, the monitor can't, can't read. So I was like, oh, is that bad? And she was just like, hmm, potentially just do a little urine sample. We'll, we'll put this stick in it. And if it changes, a, a, it was a particular color. I can't remember which. If it changes to this color, then you, there's glucose circulating in your, in your urine and you probably are diabetic. So she's like, oh, it takes about three to four minutes. She dipped the stick in within about 20 seconds. It completely changed color. She's like, oh, there's a lot of glucose in your urine. In. Um, we're going to have to run a blood test come back in the morning so she did my bloods I went away um, it was about like 7am I was working with a client and I had a phone call and it was from the doctor she was just like oh Jordan like um, are you okay what are you doing and I was like yeah, yeah I'm fine I'm, I'm still planning on coming to see you I'll be within an hour I'm just finishing with the client she's like don't come here go straight to Land Dog Hospital and I was like oh is every, everything okay she was like yeah yeah everything's fine just make sure you get someone to take you there don't take yourself there get someone to take you there I've informed the hospital they're waiting for you and then I was real scared I was like well what is actually going on she was like you're type 1 type 1 diabetics the blood workers just confirmed that and again I didn't really know what it was so I was like oh I'm fine but I'll make my own way there and she just made this big deal of like get someone to take me to the hospital and the doctors were already there going to be there waiting for me so I called my mum and she um she picked me up she took us there and then the most surreal moment then was when we walked in so in the hospital they have like the main hospital where then the diabetes has its own like separate building and I like opened the door walked in and there was just like probably about like 20 people sat down waiting and then there was just this nurse holding a drip um and I was just like making my way to reception and I was like oh um my name's Jordan Hellier I've just been referred to by my doctor I'm uh, I've been sent here and she's like yep Mr Hellier right this way and then she's just sort of like was really like are you okay how are you feeling and I was like yeah yeah I'm fine I'm fine and then she took me into this separate room and then there's a doctor there waiting with the bed like already laid out with like my file up on his computer and my mum was just kicking off. She was just like, no one's telling us everything. No one's telling us anything. We're, we've been pulled all left, right and centre. We don't know what's going on. La, 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 la. So the doctor was really, really calm. He was like, sit down. They put a drip in, a drip in, my, in my arm, told me to lay down, did a couple of like random, random tests. And then when um, they loaded up my blood work, there was, I could see everything was just like out of range. Um, I can't remember all of the metrics, but the, the one metric they, they used to measure is your HbA1c, which is like your hemo, hemoglobin. Um, and like a normal range is like, I think up to like 36. So it's like, you know, I think it's like late 20s to 36. Um, and then there was this poster I, I, I remember seeing at the, the chart and it was like normal ranges, so like non-diabetic. Then it was like a pre-diabetic, type 2 diabetics and an undiagnosed type 1. An undiagnosed type 1 was like up to 100 and that was like the end of the scale and I was 167. So I was like, I was just like completely off the scale. And then the doctor was saying to me like in, in all my times of like practicing, you know, being a diabetes consultant, um, for like 20 plus years, I've never seen someone with a HbA1c so high, but then functioning so well. And then when we like sort of unpacked it, then they were basically saying like, because of my lifestyle, because I was coaching so much mm. um, on court, because I was exercising so much, because I was eating so well, um, it kept me alive. And if, if I had like a sedentary job and I ate like, you know, the standard westernized foods and, you know, didn't look after myself, then I'd probably have died. Mm. That's... That's crazy. So what does is, what is a normal, typical day of nutrition look like for you then? Um, so um, pretty, like, pretty normal in terms of like what, like, you know, like performance athletes will eat. So generally my first meal is like oats and some fruit within that. Then I eat like eggs and toast. Uh, next meal then is some sort of like beef, rice, veggies. I'll either have that a couple of times or I'll 
put chicken in there as well and then dinner is the same sort of same sort of thing to be honest um and then i'll just snack on like fruit for the day um since since staying with thomas i've been uh, exposed to kangaroo which is really cool i really really like that and wagyu don't really have that at home so uh yeah getting a little bit a little bit more diverse sounds funny for you guys but i didn't have a clue when he said how, how did you find the adjustment to you know self-administering insulin how long did it take you to learn what to do how did you adjust to what what's the monitor in your arm called uh, it's called a libra sensor a libra sensor how long did it take you to adjust to that thing always being on you and having to scan it and stick needles in every part of your body every 20 seconds yeah so the initial transition was really overwhelming so bear in mind i didn't really know what like type 1 diabetes was or how you really medicated it so they were like after we had this like you know this meeting when i first got to the hospital they were like um right here's your background insulin you'll take that in the morning this is going to be your starting dose this is your fast acting insulin you eat this every time you have a have a meal we're going to use a set dose and this is how much you inject it this is how you finger prick to test your sugars these are the monitoring strips these are the lancet you change it every time and i was like whoa and then she handed me over, showed me everything. I had a little trial go with the insulin. And she's like, yeah, great. This is what you're going to do. She's like, I'm going to phone you every day for the next couple of weeks. And we're going to monitor how your, your blood glucose is, is trending. Gave me a little diary and off I went. She was like, you need to pick up the stuff from the, from the pharmacy. And then my prescription was just like this. It was just like all these things that I needed to get. And I walked out of there and I was like, I don't even know what, what I've got. But all I know is I've got like two injection, two different types of insulin I have to inject one multiple times one just once i got these finger pricking things to draw blood to test my sugars or i've got a monitor and it's just really overwhelming at the start but like it was a it was a really strange sensation because it was really overwhelming to the point where i was just like i've got this for life and it was like really hard to process that but then on the flip side of that i was relieved because i was like what i feeling wasn't normal and now i've yeah. got a solution to feel like you know normal um so that was a really really crazy period but then luckily then over like the years then technology and the investment that like our nhs are putting into like diabetes is really vast so like we get in these like libra sensors these blood mon these blood glucose monitors which basically prevent well stops us from finger pricking so frequently and now we can just scan our arm and it just gives us a little bit more uh, data in terms of like what your current sugars are at how they're trending they put it in a graph so you can see how you've been throughout the day and then when you have one of these you can see like how you respond to different foods and certain dosages and stuff like that so it's 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 helping helping me manage it a lot and it takes a lot of like stress away from like diabetes but like mm. the thing that we say like you refer to they use the term burden like it, it is is like it is something that you can't forget like every decision you make just day to day you have to consider your sugars like if you're going to go out for a, a walk or you're going to be out of the house or away from like restaurants and stuff for a period of time you need to have like jelly babies sugary snacks or something to raise your sugars if they start to drop you need to make sure you're carrying like insulin on you the whole time if you're going to have some food so it's something you can't be spontaneous with and then more specifically at, at competition because of like the adrenaline and all the hormones that are flying around like your sugars become really unpredictable so like when you're warming up to you know do your squats and something it's like i want to be really intrinsically in tune for my squats but then i still got to be sort of extrinsically aware of like my my sugars so you mm. need to be sort of in with the with the uh, like your squats and in tune with how you're moving for performance but then you need to be like actually i need to make sure my sugars are going to be stable throughout this period and make sure i'm eating or make sure i'm doing an injection so it gets a little bit complicated but like you learn to deal with it you know and you learn to go on i don't think it's like a I don't think it, it can um, prevent you from pursuing and and progressing in, in any sport, you know? It's just a case of, like, understanding how it works for you, manage, managing it, and then, you know, just dealing with it well, as well as you can. Um, I'm not too sure. So the Libra testing things, is that relatively new technology? Yeah, it's probably... It's, 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 it's new in the UK, this is now. Yeah. Um, it's new to, like, get on prescription, and we get it for free. So that's what I was going to say. So one of my old clients, she's actually got that. But in Australia, it's not covered yeah. by Medicare or healthcare. So she paid like seven to 10 grand. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's per year kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. So we, we were paying, I think it was about £100 a, um, £100 a month. Um, so what's that, like 200 bucks? 200 bucks a month approximately yeah. initially. And we were buying it um, directly from um, the company that, that make them. But now the NHS have like seen how much value there is in these 
blood glucose monitors and they found that like by putting it on the nhs and giving it to people for free they were solving more problems in mm. terms of like um people weren't coming in with like you know, you know going into like ketosis or they were they weren't they weren't coming in with like mm. you know real like high blood sugars they were giving you know health problems it allowed people to like manage their sugars a little bit a little bit more effectively just because it's easier just like because like, yeah just less burdensome to finger pricking and yeah and a lot of people man like um is it more accurate as well um, I'm not too sure in terms of accuracy. I'd probably say it's slightly less accurate okay. than a finger prick, but I think like some people really dislike finger pricking all the time. Yeah, uh, it's like it's, it's understandable. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, um, yeah. So like, I think what was happening is like with a with a scan, it's just a case of like you know put your phone over it and it gives you a reading. Whereas some people just probably wouldn't even check their sugars mm -hmm. and then they would just do a random random injection and just sort of wing it. So I think it just give, gave people a little bit more of a simpler accountability. This is this is uh this might be a little bit off topic but uh in the nrl about 10 years ago cj you might remember brett stewart mm. played for the seagulls so yeah. he was a type 1 diabetic and i know he was allowed to sit out a lot of preseason training what's the what's the thought process behind that so he had to he got to sit out a lot of fitness testing a lot of preseason training and i'm pretty sure it was all because of his type 1 diabetes um to be honest i'm not really sure like and unless he was like sitting out for the purpose of like getting some thorough testing or maybe from you know personal to him he he was having some issues with like sugar control and it was causing some like you know problems within his health that maybe you know pushing himself through fitness testing wouldn't be conducive to making him a better athlete but in terms of like you know sitting out from just like normal diabetes that's like that's the equivalent of thomas like reducing my workload because i'm diabetic you know like thomas We'll probably oh, wait, I'm not meant to do that. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, have, let's chat after. Yeah, for sure. Edit that. Um, but yeah, like, you know, like I would, I would just, just I'm still going to be doing the exact same work. I'd still be wanting to do the same testing. Like it, providing you're well controlled, I, I don't think it's going to, you know, cause any sort of like delays or it shouldn't cause any issues with like performance in, in sport in general. Yeah, my assumption was, sorry, no. sorry to cut you off. My assumption was maybe his uh, blood sugar levels just got dangerously too low really quickly. Like he might have had a very rare case or, or his diabetes was just possibly a very different scenario. Or yeah, but like if, if it was like during the session, for sure. Like if your mm. blood sugars go low, you can't do anything. Yeah. Like you have to treat that hypo. You have to wait like, you know, 10, 15 minutes until your sugars get back up into a normal range and then go again, for sure. So like if it happened like during a session, it's the same if it was like happened to him in a match. Mm. Like you can't like, you can't do anything when your sugars are low, you know, like the, the feeling of low blood sugar is like being drunk, you know, you're really shaky. You have like a really foggy brain. You find it really hard to process things. You can't articulate what you want to articulate. So in terms of performing like professional sport at a really high level, it just wouldn't be possible. Mm. It's um, I've got a quick story for you. So like my dad's type one diabetic, and uh, when he when we were younger, he had these jelly beans in the car, like the glucogels. Yeah. And he went he went somewhere. Me and my brother were just sitting in the car waiting. We opened the drawer, we found them. Like yeah, mad. We got some fucking jelly beans, <laughs> and we just ate them, not knowing what they were. And then I remember ages after he was going. Is it called hyper? Hyper, hyper, yeah. Hyper, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was, he was spazzing out. We're like, who is this guy? Like, he was, you know, he was like almost hallucinating. And 100%. Yeah, it was, it was a really crazy experience. And yeah, now I know not to touch his jelly beans. Yeah, I've only ever had Wait, so he was looking for his jelly beans and he had none because you ate them? Yep. What did, you, what did he end up doing? Uh, he had to pull over on the side of the road and he rang my mom and yeah, it was pretty, it was crazy. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, you can't drive when you're having a hypo. Nah. <laughs> so pass yeah. out and die. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. But me and my brother were really young, so we didn't know what was going yeah, on. Because sure. we didn't understand the, you know, the extent of what diabetes yeah, is. We wow. You know, when you're a kid, you don't understand any of those things. Mm. Well, for sure. Um, yeah, the first time I was exposed to the contrast of what it's like, you know, performance-wise, um, Semler, you know, he, he he's old school. He'd be like your dad. You know, new school, the things like the Libra Monitor make it so much more um, incentivized to be on top of your sugars because it's easier. And from what I know from a lot of old school diabetics, um, you know, the, the few that I know anyway, they just don't care as much anymore or they've got like life fatigue, you know, they've been doing it for 30 or 40 years and they're just kind of sick of it and get lazy with it. And Jason seemed to do it a lot by feel and you'd see it. So he'd come to the gym, he would fail a 220 bench warm up. He'd be like, oh, I'm low. Go drink a Maximus. Like Jordan said, wait 10 or 15 minutes, then do a triple on 260. <laughs> It, like the contrast was insane <laughs> and the time between the contrast was insane like absolutely wild i wanted to ask you um you know i'm i'm guessing you become quite in tune to how you feel based on sugars being high or low um but then you've got a monitor to tell you and you know 
there's there's the whole um, thing about you know technology and how it makes us feel from a just mental perspective. You know, like if I look at my CPAP and it says I've slept six hours, I feel shit because it says I should feel shit rather than me actually feeling shit. Do you ever get that with your diabetes? Do you ever feel good and then you check your sugars and they're, they're a little bit lower, a little bit higher or inconsistent? You're like, oh, now I feel shit because I know I should. Yeah, so like I think diabetes is quite is quite unique to that because like within like ranges, so say like the normal ranges between like, you know, like five and seven, say, right? So anything slightly outside of, of those normal ranges, you won't feel. Like you won't feel any sort of change. Anything like more extreme to those ranges, you'll hundred percent feel. Um, so like you were referring to that 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 guy that just went by feel, it's because you can feel it. Yep. If I am going like below four in my sugar readings, I'll start getting a little bit little bit shaky. You know, I'll start feeling a little bit weird, and I I can I know like through experience that that's a hypo symptom. And then on the flip side of that, if I was like exceeding, you know, and I, my sugars were in like the late teens, I'd have like this really like parched. I'd be really parched in my mouth. It'd be really dry. Um, I'd I need to go to the toilet, and I'd get all, I'd need I'd have these like high um, sugar feelings. Um, but in terms of like you know just slightly out of range, you can't feel that, so you don't associate like you know oh my sugars are twelve, I feel shit. It's like well no because that's only slightly out of range. You just feel normal in mm. in that. It's only the extremes in which you really feel it. Which sure. I guess is why it took you so long to even realize how bad you were feeling you know, before you got diagnosed. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like, it's it's why it's such a, which is, I don't know if silent killer is the right terminology for it, but, you know, for people like yourself, you were never exposed to diabetes. You had no idea what the symptoms were. And so you start pissing more, you start drinking more, you start feeling a bit funny, you start losing weight. You, you've got, you assume you're normal because you are normal. Yeah. And so, like, you have no idea what diabetes is. You never think, oh, these are symptoms of diabetes. So it's easy for you to sit there and be like, in hindsight, I had all these symptoms, but how the fuck would you know? 100%. You know? And it's like the stuff that you draw upon with, like, sleep, you know? People that say, oh, I, I function fine on four hours of sleep. It's like, no, you don't. You just, you're accustomed to feeling it like shit. It becomes your new normal. Yeah, and that's exactly what's happening to me. It just started to become my new normal. And it's only when it got to the act, the uh, the end of it, the extremes of it, in which I was like, actually, this is definitely not normal. Like, the justifications that I was making for feeling like that were just like, nah, like, this is not even enough. That's not enough for how I'm feeling, mm. for sure. So, like, what, sorry. No, um, okay. Before you um, got the diagnosis and you started to feel weird, so were you going hypo? Is it hypo? So I would be going hyper because I wouldn't be, I was like hyperglycemic because I didn't have insulin. So um, the feelings that I was feeling were just from high high blood sugars. So that's just like, that's the weight loss. That's okay. constantly going so to the toilet. So you weren't getting the shakes. No. That's when no. you dip. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, like high sugars as well comes with like chronic fatigue. So like mm. there was like, I think two occasions that I can remember where I was working on court, waiting for a client, and I just fell asleep on the bench, like in work, you know, oh, waiting wow. for the client to come on court, and I've fallen asleep. And then she comes on court, and I'm like, whoa, okay, yeah, fine. And then I was just getting more and more and more lethargic. But again, yeah. you just create the justification. I'm lethargic because I'm working loads, and mm. I'm tired, you know? It's just like, you just create it until it got to that point where I was like falling asleep, throwing up and vomiting my, the water I was drinking. There's another story. I went and got tattooed in London, and I took this thing called a Megabus, um, and it's like from London to Cardiff, it's probably like three hours, you know, and uh, I knew I was feeling like I was feeling I was like, I'm going to be thirsty on this journey. So I'm going to buy uh, I bought like two 750 mil bottles of water. Right. And the bus got slightly delayed. I drank the first bottle of water before the bus departed. And I, I drank the second bottle of water within 10 minutes, you know, so like within like 20 minutes, I drank both these bottles of bottles of water. Right. And I was 10 minutes deep into my journey. And I was like, again, it was just because of this inertia. As soon as water touched, I couldn't just sip. I had to drink it because I couldn't quench my thirst. So I was on this mega bus and they're, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're really like cheap, like grotty buses. Like they're just like really inexpensive way to travel, right? So I w it was a late night um, bus. It was about 11, 12 o'clock. People were sleeping. I went down to the bus driver. I was like, man, I really need a drink. Is there, is, can I drink the water that's in the toilet? And he's like, definitely not. It's like contaminated. Don't, don't touch it. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, fine. So I sat down and then half an hour is gone. And I'm like, oh my God, I really, really need a drink now. So I stole um, two bottles of water from people that were sleeping. Crazy. Because I just had to have a drink. I was like, under no sick. I'm not going to wake him up. I literally walked. I was sat at the back and I walked down going left to right. And then I saw like this lady sleeping. So I took a bottle of water out of her bag, went back, drunk that. So then the last like half hour of the journey, I was like, I'm going to have to do that again. Walked a bit further down. There was a guy sleeping and he had a bottle of water on the side of his seat. So I took that, walked it back and drunk it. And then as soon as I got off the bus, I ran to the shop and I necked like a litre of water. 
And I was just like, this is just not normal. Mm. Did you have to like piss all that out? Yeah, like, for sure. And that's the, that's the cycle you go through. It's it just goes through you. Yeah. So when you um, uh, got medicated properly and all that, um, you know, we're talking about like with sleep, how, you know, you just get used to feeling like crap all the time. And then, and then, you know, you start getting proper sleep and you realize how good. Did mm. you have that moment? Like when you started monitoring everything, knowing what was wrong with you, treating yourself and all of a sudden you're like, wow, I didn't, this is, I forgot this is what normal felt like. Man, I felt like God. Yeah. It was crazy. So I went down to like, you know, mid 70 kilos. Within a couple of months, I was like up into the 90s. I just went big, Jeez. real, big, real quick. Um, I just like responded really well to training. I was really energized. I wasn't waking up four or five times a night to go to the toilet. So I just felt way, way better. It, tra- it literally transformed me. I felt like a completely different person. Oh, wow. And yeah, it was crazy, crazy. Yeah. So... Um, I want you to tell your story of, of what happened at Pro Raw after squats with losing your phone. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So after squats at Pro Raw, I was like, I was pretty like out of it. You know, I finished my last, my last squat um, and I was just sort of made my way back to my to my seat. And because Pro Raw was so busy that day, there was just people everywhere. Um, so I like put my phone down. I gave my headphones to someone and I, I just forgot what I did. Um, and then, yeah, so after squats, I always like to eat. Um, and I, yeah, I, I lost my phone. So then I was just like frantically walking around because I need my phone to scan my glucose monitor. So I was like, I can't eat until I've scanned my monitor so I know how much insulin to take. And at like a competition, you can't just guess, you know, you can't just make these uh, make these assumptions. So yeah, I was like frantically moaning around. I asked Thomas, I was like, have you seen my phone? I was asking everyone. I was like walking around the warm up room and asking all these people. But then there was another flight on as well. So my phone was where they're getting wrapped, so I didn't want to interfere with taking them out of the zone. So it was really stressful, but luckily the announcer put uh, put an announcement up, and I managed to get my phone, scan my arm, got my sugars injected, and then I could eat. Yeah, it, it, for me, it just highlighted like, you know, again, I, I see the burden of you know we don't have to think when we leave the house. You have to carry around this thing with you all the time. You know, your, your little travel pack of all the needles and the insulin and everything, and you know the backup. Uh, strips and monitor and everything like that and Mm. just something as simple as you finish squats you have a feed you chill out Mm. phone goes missing can't eat you know and so like the stress level of jordan i could see him pacing around the gym looking and then you know i grabbed i grabbed meg and i grabbed someone else and we're walking around the the gym like tapping on everyone's phone looking for the background of jordan's dog um, and then I ran over to the um, the MC and got him to announce it. And I said, "We need this phone. This guy's type one diabetic, and if he if he doesn't get on top of this, it can be really hairy really quickly. Like just something as little as that. Anyone else? You just eat. You deal with your phone after you finished eating. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a couple hours to to walk around. It just yeah highlights a layer of complexity you have to deal with. That's mm. crazy. Like if you know our phones go dead. Oh, can't go on fucking Instagram. Can't yeah. contact this person. Can't do that. Jordan's phone goes dead. His you know it's tough to say but his life is literally on the line yeah it's just, yeah it's just like you can't let that happen yeah it's just another consideration that goes with it you know can't lose my phone can't let my phone go can't let my phone go dead otherwise i'm uh, yeah it gets it gets hairy Jeez. yeah it gets even more stressful i remember that when the guy announced because i didn't know until the announcement and the night before we had dinner and that's when I was educated for the first time about uh, like what you have to do for diabetes. CJ, it's both CJ and Meg. I like I knew John was diabetic, so you know he busts out the busts out the insulin every now and again, just shoves it in. You yeah, know? like fuck, Jordan in Australia, we don't just take gear at the at the <laughs> dinner table. You know, like you do this stuff privately, and they both thought I was being serious. <laughs> no, I've seen people jab insulin before, but I didn't realize. Oh. That, yeah. Yeah, no, now I know Dr. That? CJ over here <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah just like um, What you were telling us about like how important it is If you don't have your phone whatnot. And then I was on the front row filming our lifters And then I hear the announcement And I yeah. just start panicking because you're competing And I remember just like going Man's gonna start shaking Like if he doesn't Like he needs this phone And uh, like at Pearl, it was just packed. It was packed like, on Sunday. And there's just phones everywhere. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> so you're I picking know. up 30 phones. I don't know which one. Yeah. And then you think, I was thinking like, oh, maybe someone's picked up their, my phone thinking it's their phone because mm. they were just everywhere. And like, it's going to be much harder to find. It's like, oh. That's why I got yeah. Tim to announce it. I was like, I bet someone's just grabbed, because it was just sitting by the thing. Someone's just grabbed it, chucked it in their pocket. And 
Yeah, I t- got Tim to announce, everyone, look at your phone if there's a background of a staffy. We need that phone right now. Mm. So, yeah, how, it was quite quick after the announcement. Yeah, someone had it. already handed it in on the other side of the room. So we had asked the tech desk and stuff. Uh, but on the other side of the competition, there was like where they were doing the music. Someone mm. had handed it in over there. Yeah, so okay. we got it back pretty quickly, Damn. thankfully. This isn't a really, this isn't a good question, but do you still play tennis? Uh, I don't play competitively for myself. Yeah. But I still coach like a, a select few. So yeah. I, probably, I don't do that much now. I do like maybe like 10, 15 hours on court um, with just like the players I want to prioritize. So like if someone asks me for like, oh, will you do some coaching with me? I'm, I'm like, oh no, I don't, I'm full. Um, so I only, I literally only work with literally a handful of players and those players are all trying to pursue tennis as a career or go down American college route. Um, because like, you know, at the end of the day, I don't really need to coach tennis anymore. So like, uh, I just do it for fun. And, and if like I'm working with an individual that gives something back or just showing a real drive to try and pursue the sport, I, I still absolutely love that. So I, I, yeah, I work with like five people maybe. And that's it. Mm. What got you, uh, we didn't touch on this, what got you into actually coaching powerlifting? Like you started powerlifting, when did you actually start coaching it and, and why did you go down that route? Yeah, good question. I've never really thought about that. So like... Because when you, weren't you taking CrossFit classes initially? Is that how you started? Um, not, not really. So I went like... So I think this is... I think the route... Yeah, yeah, this is it. So like I started um, pursuing it myself as a hobby. So I did that first comp that I, was, I told you earlier. And then from there, there was like... I was um, training out of a CrossFit gym and powerlifting didn't exist at all there. So from that point, I said to the owner, because he uh, like met Louis Simmons, he did like a California trip and he was quite into powerlifting himself. And I was like, let me just expose people to powerlifting. And we just ran like a mock meet. We were like, we'll run on this day. We didn't like do any training into it. We just said it's a squat bench and deadlift um, like max out day. And then when we had like 10 or 12 people sort of book onto it, we were like... Um, um, Robin was like, oh, explain the rules briefly and then we'll just like chuck the tunes on and we'll get these people to lift heavy. So I just quickly explained the rules and like that, it was a crazy evening. It was just like, it was like a real backyard sort of like multiple racks. But then when someone was lifting, it was like no sort of judges. We just explained like try and squat, you know, hip crease below the knee, la la la. And then everyone was just standing around them, shouting at them, the music was blasting. It was a real fun like lifting environment, mm. just like as you do here at Zero when people are going heavy, you know? And from that point, I was like, this is fucking sick. I really would love to teach these people a bit more about this, you know, like the nuance of like low bar because they were all like CrossFitters and, you know, the arch and the bench press, potential of sumo and all that sort of stuff. So from there, then I started, I did a couple of S&C courses um, just so I could do it. And then from there, then I was just, there was nothing out there for like powerlifting specific. So then I was just gathering information randomly from the internet and just using a load of information from different resources. And then I just created my own little like powerlifting club within within that CrossFit gym. And then it just started taking off. And that's how pretty much like my, I got identified as like a powerlifting coach was from that point. Sick. It's um, <clears throat> so obviously in the UK, sorry, Obviously in Wales, the powerlifting scene isn't as big as it is here. So coming to Australia, where I'd say we've got the second biggest, we're the second biggest country for powerlifting in the world behind behind America. Would you agree, Thomas? Yeah, it's it's pretty hard to say that many people are doing it bigger than us. Yeah, yeah. It's so like huge over here. Yeah, so powerlifting here wow. is fucking huge. So what's it like coming to Australia and being like, holy shit, all of these guys are powerlifters. Everyone loves powerlifting. You come to somewhere like Zero, where this is like. I'm assuming this is the first full-blown powerlifting gym you've been to. Yeah, so like my time in Australia, I've been, I think I've seen pretty much the best of, uh, of, the, of the gym so Cream far. Cream the crop. Yeah, so I went, I, st- I spent a week in Melbourne before coming over to Brisbane and like there I went to see the Melbourne Strength Culture Boys. Um, so I sat with JB Smith, chatted to him for a little bit and I saw his gym and he was explaining how he like, they designed it and they changed, they had all the little like nuance and the interior stuff with it. Um, that was unbelievable. We have nothing like that back at home. So that was real cool. Then I went to like PTCHQ where ProRo was held and saw like, you know, all the equipment there and the stuff he had to move out to have the event there. Um, crazy, like the backward facing mono. I've never even seen one of those before it's just crazy i went to apex which they have like multiple you know powerlifting bits of equipment and you know a load of powerlifters that train there and now i've i've seen the three zeros in brisbane and the gold coast so like that is it's just like 
are mad. Like the, some of the stuff that I've seen here, I've never seen before. You know, like the like the Thomas was showing me, like the the difference in some of the monoliths you have here, and how it's like you know, like little nuanced details to make it a little bit like user friendly. And like back at home, I don't train on a monolift; I train on mono hooks. Yeah, because there's no gyms in Cardiff that have a monolift. Um, and like the bars that we use in competition, I have to buy them myself, and I I take them to the gym with me. So it's a it's a real like you know it's a real mad experience for me to be here. So yeah, I can't wait to get in amongst it now with you boys and have a few sessions on it all. That's it, because it's crazy. It's still crazy to me because we've just become so accustomed to it because we've been here for mm. so long, or whatever. But other people that are powerlifters and they haven't trained at a powerlifting gym and they come here and they're you know they're mind blown. They're like, wait, so you've got fucking more than one deadlift bar? Wait, oh. this is a different bar for squatting. Oh, you like, spoiled. Like, even yeah. like, like Thomas was like, oh, um, we talked about like deadlift bars, you know? And I was like, oh, yeah, I got a Texas deadlift bar. He's like, oh, have you got, have you seen the chrome one? I was like, what's that? I was like, I didn't even know they did a chrome one. And he's like, oh, no, I got one at the gym. Have a look. And I was like, oh, my God, that's sick. You know, real grippy. It's just like, mm. it's crazy. Yeah. I used to, we, we talk about it all the time, but I remember when we used to have Oki bars and Goliath bars, and, you know, we'd be like, oh, got a deadlift with the Oki deadlift bar today. <laughs> it's like, fuck, how spoiled. Yeah, it is. Even especially like holding comps here our warm-up room and like how we have like four helicos to warm up on like combo racks and you know three and that to me is like that's normal for me because i started mm. powerlifting in mm. zero and then when you were telling me about your first comp how the warm-up room was like the size of this studio here and there was like people had to bring their own weights if they were really strong yeah in some comps yeah you had to walk out your squats because there's only one mono and hearing that just i was like wow that's that sounds so ghetto and I, I think that's that why, normal. like, I think that's why Australia powerlifting, especially like with the stuff here, is just growing because it just makes it such a, you know, such an enjoyable experience for people. And there's just so much access mm. to it over here. Whereas back home, if your first experience is like, you know, like quite like um, stressful because mm. of the, the the variance in equipment and the limited amounts of space, it's probably not as an enjoyable experience for people that are just getting exposed to the sport. You know, doing it in an environment like that compared to like competing at Ground Zero. Mm. All I'm hearing is that it sounds like there's a market for a zero Cardiff, but uh, it's okay. it's <laughs> I got a conversation for later on. This <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, let's talk about pro raw then. Go, um, on, go on, Thomas. You're gonna. You might as well start this. No. Then. What do you want to say? <laughs> Look, what I, happened on night one? <laughs> <laughs> I want to. Yeah, I want to stay humble. Um, you know, it can be hard. I, I feel like most people in, in my position of uh, pro or deadlift champion 2022 would be taking advantage of the situation, you know, getting photos of the trophy with people and, and bragging about it nonstop. But it's just not me. <laughs> no, nah, it doesn't sound like you at all. Uh, back to Jordan. Uh. <laughs> um, no, the pro was a blast. I think uh, the entire Zero team absolutely killed it i'm really proud of everyone you know we had an amazing weekend on on the friday was was sleeves in the single lift so we had um we had jen smith in the sleeve division she competed in the 56 uh kilo division she broke the 56 kilo class all-time australian record all-time australian total record uh and she did that in sleeves and on a deadlift bar the uh, uh sleeves and on a power bar the previous record was in wraps and on a deadlift bar so absolutely phenomenal wow. lifting uh, by jen that makes her the number one 56 and 60 kilo lifter in the country ever um which is just phenomenal she's an absolutely incredible lifter and i am um just forever so proud and privileged to have, have been part of her journey so well done to Jen Smith. Um, we had uh, Josh Dekua, who's not coached by us, but trains at, at our Zero gym, zero Gyms and is uh, definitely a big part of the family here. Uh, he had a he had an incredible incredible day. He won the 90 kilo class uh, in the sleeve division as well. Just missed out on 300 kilo squat. Um, I know how bad he wanted that. And he stood up with it. He did the squat. He hit <laughs> depth. He stood up for it with it. Uh, he got done on bar dip. So there was, there was a bit of an obvious bar dip in the middle there and unfortunately um, got red-lighted on it, but fucking valiant effort from... He's an animal. ...from Josh, yeah. Then we had um, the single lift in the evening. We had uh, Andrew Cooper, one bench only. Not really any surprises there. He benched another 300 in competition, which for those who don't know is actually, you know, he's done a little bit more than that. He holds a record at 306.5, but um, he did that 425 a month or so ago. He actually got pretty injured doing that. So the shirt... Gave him some real bad neural arm pain. 
But on his four, he's, he did four attempts at that comp. His third attempt was 425, and he dropped it. And when he dropped it, like, a, he didn't drop it. He lost it. He lost it backwards into the rack. And um, I'll, I'll show you guys the video later, but he lost his wrist, and he really injured his wrist. And the his hand got pinned between the bar and the rack. Uh-huh. Like, he's really lucky he didn't lose a finger. It's it 425 kilos. So he's Jeez. been dealing with a really sore wrist and, and hand for the last four weeks. That's why his benching hasn't been um, as good as it has been in the past. Uh, so he, he really managed to pull it together um, and bench that 300. And the floor on the platform out there is quite slippery. Mm. A lot of lifters were having an issue with that. We also had Caleb uh, voice, in my opinion, uh, the best bencher in Australia. You know, Andrew's by far the strongest, but... Um, Caleb has the all-time records between the 80 and the 110 kilo class in every class. Uh, and he broke PB, he did 265, weighing in at under 110, uh, which pushes his 110 kilo record up by five kilos and just missed out on 272, just missed out on mm. 600 pounds, um, which is just incredible. Would have ma- made him the, the fourth biggest bencher ever in Australia. Um then we had the single lift deadlift. We had Liddy Hankey. She pulled uh, 262.5 kilos, uh, which is the biggest deadlift ever pulled by a female at Pro Raw. Uh, and I believe the third biggest deadlift ever by a female in Australia. Mm. Uh, so absolutely incredible lifting there. She won that spot. Uh, and then, of course, I mean, it's no secret that I <laughs> completely dominated uh, the deadlift only in the male <laughs> class. Now, the, the, the male deadlift only was fun. It was, in the end, me versus Terry Sparks. Um, Terry could have beaten me with a 350-kilo pull, but he opted for 360 because that would have given him the top spot at the Valhalla Strength um, uh, on their board, which is pretty common in our style of gym. People are more invested in, in being top spot or moving up a spot on the, on the leaderboard than they are in the competition sometimes. <laughs> Amazing. And really, he pulled the 360. Yeah. Like, he got it up to the top, and he got the down call. He was just soft on his lockout. Mm. So he, he, yeah, he, it was an amazing effort by him to pull 360. Uh, but there can only be one winner on mm. the day. So <laughs> you would have just pulled 380 after that, though, eh? Oh, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> no, he had the advantage because he was pulling after me. Oh, yeah. Okay. So he, he had all the power then. Um, day two. Who do we have on day two? We had the 60 kilo females. We had um, Nicole Farrell and uh, Lisa Ole. Both of them competed brilliantly. Uh, Nicole went for the third place uh, on her third pull, uh, but just missed out on on 177.5 at 60 kilos. Fucking amazing, amazing deadlifting by her. Um, Her and Lisa both went over 400 at under 60 kilos. So amazing lifting by both of them. Uh, We had Rachel Baxter. Uh, She competed and uh, she lifted incredibly as well. She squatted 240 kilos. One step. Absolutely incredible. Squatted 240. Um, brilliant lifting by Rachel. Um, we had Wes Vick as well in the 95 males, and, and he had a really great day as well. Um, so day two was cool. It was a little bit quieter. Day two? Yes. Saturday, there yeah, weren't, there yeah, weren't as many people there. Uh, and then day three, the big boys, we had the 110. So we had Jordan, Rido, Josh Rayson. Um, the hell competed mad. The, the, the 110s was a wild division. It was a tight top, uh, toe tops um, position in terms of like everyone was in like what like I think the top couple were in like a couple of kilos of each other, and then the battle yeah. for like you know like second and third and fourth was in like you know ten fifteen kilos of each other. Super and tight from the start. It could have been anyone's day. Like mm. the the guys that were stronger, they could have had a bad day, and the guys underneath them could have chased up. Like it was, it was always going to come down to deadlifts, and um, yeah, the one tens were were unreal. Mm. Um, you know. Jordan completed it brilliantly. The the 350 squat he did was fucking awesome. Uh, just missed out on the 360. Um, Righto gave us all a heart attack. Missed his first two squats, then changed his technique on the third to get it. <laughs> uh, fucking never do that again to me, Righto. Never, Rido. ever do that again, please. Um, and Josh Rayson, he's a relative newcomer to Team Zero, and he had, a, he had an incredible day as well. Really, really strong lifting for him for his return back to powerlifting. He's, he's a powerlifter of days gone by. Then he did some bodybuilding in the middle. Um, now he's back on board with powerlifting. So he, he had an awesome day as well. Um, then we had Big Khan, uh, owner of, of Zero Mackay. He competed as well. He had a he had a fun day, you know, his first big pro roar experience. Uh, Khan won't admit it, but uh, I think he gets a bit nervous. You know, he, he changes personality quite a lot on competition day. <laughs> mm. Um 
yeah, so I, I think it was a really good learning experience for him and a good experience overall. And, and he did really well. Um, you know, he, he had a good day. And um, uh, then in the big boys, we had Joe Whitaker. That was, Beast. Uh, yeah, that was unreal. Big battle. He's a monster, eh? Right? Who opens on a 410 squat? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who squats over 400 kilos? Yeah. yeah. Opened on 410, did a 435 on his second, but just just shy of depth, and then buried a 435 uh, third, and, and, and it buried him. So that set him back a little bit. He had to work hard to catch up to, to Vasa, and then it came down to the, the third deadlift. And on the third deadlift, he said to me, there's two options. Uh, you know, I either, I either pull whatever needs to be pulled and I win, or I keep pulling until I pass out. Those were his only two options, and he did it. As in the second option, <laughs> he kept pulling until he passed out. Yeah, so close. So, so we had to load up three sixty-seven point five uh, to pull, which is far above what what he's pulled before. Um, and he got it up to the top. He, he almost at, had it. Yeah, he yeah. Was, he was basically at the top, uh, and then yeah, he saw God and fell over, and that was game over. <laughs> I didn't yeah. miss anyone, did I? Was that everyone? What What was your guys' experience of the of the competition? For me personally, as a competitor, it was my first pro raw. Um, I thought it was super fun. You know, from the experience of like warming up on what f- an option of five monos, like it made warm ups really, really nice. Um, but like, the, I think the best thing for me was like one meeting all these people. You know, like um, I think I was one of the was sorry, I one of the only like, sorry, Thomas, you missed uh, Wick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was just going through the photos to to make sure we had um, Wick from Mackay. She. Um, She's a. She was in the sixties as well. She's a little mm. nugget. She's so strong, very jacked as well. Yeah, she had an awesome day. Congratulations, Wick. Sorry. Uh, keep going, Jordan. Yeah, all good. Um, yeah, I think I was like one of the maybe one of the only like international lifters. Um, so like I've, I've been able to like talk to a lot of the competitors like via social media and stuff, but never met them before. Mm. So like the highlight for me was just meeting everyone, like going through like meeting all the zero guys and you know meeting all the competitors after speaking to them, and then like you know like like Josh Race and one absolute legend, you know like we w- we were down to the deadlift, you know both trying to pull for pull for third. He pulled three thirty five. I needed to pull three forty two. Um, to beat him, so there was like a really nice battle. But again, just like a super, super friendly environment. You know, there was no like sort of arrogance, hostility, or anything. To you know, it was just pure encouragement. You know, I, I wanted him to get the last pull. He missed his last pull. I gave him a fist bump, and he's like, "Right, come on now, you get it." And that's like for me to beat him. So like, I, like for me, that's like a big highlight. And that's wow. that sums up sums up powerlifting. You know, and it just sums up like the the people that were there. So my biggest highlight was just all those people. I thought it was like real cool to compete with them, and they're super friendly. And yeah, it made the day amazing for me. Why didn't you listen to him? Yeah, I know because <laughs> I got I had butt fingers. Didn't try. <laughs> my little my little thumbs wouldn't hold on for the ride. Uh. For the ride. So close. You got the facial yeah. explosions. That's the main thing. Yeah, nosebleed and look, like a weird like my badass. cheek was bleeding as well. It was crazy. Yeah. Face, like, my face exploded. I was worth it. But it looks cooler when you actually hold on to the deadlift, complete Jordan, it, and then have it. Jordan wheels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. And what about you, CJ? What what was your experience first time uh going to a big competition like Pro Roll? Oh, I loved it. I, I had so much fun. I was just um I think what I really enjoyed about it is I guess, yeah, just being away from the Gold Coast, being in Melbourne, meeting all the, like, the big names there and people that I've only ever seen on the internet. Um, but also, like, I guess, you know, the heart of Pro Raw is that it's there's no federations. It's they all come together. And I, I found that to be so cool, seeing people from different federations, um, more variety of gyms, and, and just seeing, like, the... Like their, their, I guess their clicks, like their gyms, and just you could tell like they had their own culture that they brought and their own um, methods on you know how they lift, and you, you could just see like it was so much diversity over such you know over three lifts, you know, but like we all came together and it was like the biggest, baddest, strongest people, and it, it was just so cool because and even like what you were talking about like that like you know um, if even for the last. Um, one tens were uh, who was that guy with the yellow glasses that was pulling for the win? Anthony, Anthony. yeah, yeah, Anthony, yeah, in the one twenty fives. Yeah, like everyone got around to cheer that mm, on, like yeah. it, whether it was uh, from their gym or not. And sa- same deal, like even uh, with the last two big boys, um, Whitaker and Vasa, and yeah, it was just so much fun. Like it was, uh, I just assumed. I guess my mindset going into it was like, oh, this is going to be like really like 
everyone's gonna be so clinical and like you know don't talk to me i'm 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 competing on the biggest stage and it was not like that at all. It mm. was like, it honestly kind of reminded me of like what a novice comp is like here. It's just, everyone's just chill. Mm. Um, yeah. And it was just really cool to be just a spectator there and just enjoy the show. Mm. It's um obviously I didn't get to go down uh, just cause there's some personal uh, stuff going on down here that I needed to deal with. But um, from the outside, oh, thanks to everyone who messaged me as well, just checking in on me. It was good. I was meant to handle uh, Josh Takua down there as well, so uh, I'm gutted I didn't get to do that because it would have been my first pro Raw experience. Ever since I've known Thomas, I've wanted to go down to pro Raw every year as well. Um, but from the outside looking in, it was just cool seeing, what I loved seeing is all the XPA lifters down there. Mm. Like, because uh, previously they weren't allowed to, they weren't even allowed to be at other powerlifting competitions, were they? Yeah, yeah. You oh, were they allowed were? to go and spectate. You weren't allowed to officiate, but mm. Wilkes would tell people that they'd be banned if they were yeah. if they were spectating. Because I know he's made people turn their t-shirts inside out and fucking stupid shit like that. Mm. But um, it was just really cool seeing the powerlifting community grow, and like that's what it should be about. Like, it shouldn't be about the division of lifters, and you can't go hang out with these guys because they fucking take special sauce or all that. You know, all that jazz. And it was just really cool seeing some of these really strong PA lifters mix it, uh, ex-PA lifters, you know, yeah. mix it with the other big boys. It was really fucking awesome to see. Mm. Funny story. Um, someone, as a joke, gifted Ed Cohen a um, Powerlifting Australia t-shirt at a pro roll once. And Ed is not a fan of Robert Wilkes. Um, and he got he didn't want the shirt. So I was like, I'll have it. So he gave it to me. And so I wore it at Pro Raw. Like I was walking around a PA <laughs> shirt, just re- repping PA at Pro Raw was sick. Oh, um, but this past weekend. No, 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 no. This is, this is years ago. Oh, okay. um, yeah, no, I, I, I echo what you guys say. Like it's my favorite thing about the Pro Raw event each year is like a lot of these crews and a lot of these lifters and their coaches and the teams only re- really get to see in a comp environment sort of once a year you know, or twice a year if they do another comp like national. So when everyone comes together, it's just, it's just so much fun. Yeah. So much fun because we're all like-minded, you know, we have our different idiosyncrasies. We have our different cliques and all that sort of stuff, but it's so cool to see everyone get together for this, this one unified purpose. And like James said, it was cool to see a bunch of the XPA people, especially in the sleeved, in the sleeved day, you know, for sure. Um, like I've, I've known and spoken to people like JP for almost 10 years. And it was the first time I met him at that competition. Like, pretty pretty wild. Um, so hopefully that's a, a good sign for things to come now that PA's dead. Um, and things like, you know, Pro Raw coming back, USAPL and APL are making things a lot more inclusive and a lot more accessible. I think powerlifting is just going to get bigger and better. Because Pro Raw is arguably the, the biggest stage in powerlifting in Australia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the biggest stages in the world. Uh, for sure. So it's it's cool. Yeah, like you like we've said a million times just in the last few minutes. It's fucking awesome to see everybody's got a chance to go and compete there now. Mm. Literally the best of the best in Australia can go and compete. Yeah, sure. regardless of whatever federation they're in, it's just the strongest. The strongest. Yeah. For sure. I love that. Yeah. All right. Well, that's got to be us. We've gone over time. So thank you very much for listening. Um, we'll we'll put up links to Jordan's social media. You can go follow him and and check out what he's doing. Uh, thanks for coming on, Jordan. We oh, really thank, appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. Give us five stars and all that jazz, and we'll see you next time. See ya. Cheers. Peace. Thank you so much for listening to the Zero Podcast. If you want more information, head to our Instagram, Zero underscore weakness. Hit the link in the bio for all of our services and any information on upcoming workshops and events. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review so we can have a broader reach and answer more people's questions. Thank you once more.